Hi, I'm Mark Rotterman. Coming up on Front Row, the U.S. economy slides into a recession. Medicaid expansion stalls in North Carolina, and Senator Tom Tillis voices his support for the same-sex marriage bill. Next. Major funding for Front Row with Mark Rotterman is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Nicholas B. and Lucy Mayo Body Foundation, A.E. Finley Foundation, N.C. Realtors, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation, political analyst Joe Stewart, Colin Campbell, editor of the North Carolina Tribune, and Donna King with Carolina Journal. Okay, Mitch, why don't we begin with the latest on the U.S. economy? The Bureau of Economic Analysis reported on Thursday that the gross domestic product, GDP, otherwise known as the nation's economy, had fallen by 0.9% from April through June. That followed a 1.6% decline in the first quarter of this year. So that's two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Now, you've seen on social media this definition of recession that's been uh, passed around that includes two consecutive quarters of negative growth. It's not entirely true that that's what happens because another group called the National Bureau of Economic Research is the one that actually declares a recession, and it won't happen until months from now, perhaps even after it's over. But most everyone says two quarters of negative growth is a recession. Every recession that we've had since World War II has had two quarters of negative growth. And the Biden administration has been trying to redefine recession. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, is saying, no, we're just in a transition to slower growth. But, the, but whether we actually are in a recession yet or not is really a debate for the academics and policy wonks. What's really important politically is what people feel. Do they feel like we're in a that, recession? That's absolutely correct. And by the way, don't you think the Biden administration is trying to, uh, Joe, spin their way out of this? Well, absolutely. They need some good news, and this is bad news. And I think uh, the conventional wisdom about recessions is a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. It's a depression when you lose your job. Ronald and, Reagan said that. And that's about where we are. And I think we're seeing now in the economy, still unemployment's relatively low. Employers are talking about needing to fill jobs that they can't find applicants for. But some employers are starting to lay people off. And so folks that maybe were part of the Great Recession wanting to get back into the job market may find there's just not jobs available. And that is a very high probability of exacerbating this receding economy that we're facing right now. Donna, clearly, though, the, uh, Washington hasn't gotten a joke on spending, have they? No, clearly not. I mean, we see even more uh, big spending bills coming out just this week. Um, and, and that spending is really exacerbating this problem. And one of the things that we've seen now, as Joe mentioned, was the labor market starting to tighten. Uh, for a while, it was a job shoppers market. And right now, it's tightening up. And you're seeing people pull back on some spending. Now, they're spending more. 
participation, though, is down, right? It is. It is. And people are spending more, but that's mostly because prices are up. And that's something, you know, that when inflation happens, people have to spend more, unfortunately. But consumer confidence is down. Uh, some people had maybe saved a little bit. There was a lot of, you know, handouts from the federal government during COVID. So it may have masked the problem that we're seeing right now. But now with the labor market starting to tighten up, people are running out of that savings that they may have gotten. Consumer confidence is down. And I think we're going to see even more of this down the road. Are consumers changing their habits? You know, we, some of the polling and data I've seen, at least initially, and this I think is going to probably change pretty quickly if we see more layoffs and things like that. Uh, but people are saying that they're tightening their wallets, but a lot of consumer spending has not really uh, decreased. I mean, vacation destinations are still insanely popular this summer because people want to get out there and they're willing to spend the money. But like we said earlier, I mean, if you start seeing your neighbor, your coworker gets laid off, then suddenly you have to really watch your spending. And that's where people tighten up um, even more so than they have just with inflation on its own. Mitch, though, uh, retailers like Walmart are adjusting. Yeah, I mean, retailers have to adjust. Everyone's adjusting to, to what we're seeing with the economy. I think one of the interesting things is we mentioned that the Reagan statement about recession and depression. The last line of his li of his statement was, and it's a recovery when Jimmy Carter loses his job. And I think that's what Republicans <laughs> and that's what Republicans are he looking at now. With words, didn't he? He, he did. <laughs> and that's what Republicans are looking at now, saying, look, it's the Biden administration and its policies that are causing these problems. Remember that when you go to the polls in November. OK, I I want to talk about the prospects for Medicaid expansion this year in North Carolina. I think they took a hit this week, according to your report. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there was a lot of optimism uh, at the beginning of July about where Medicaid stood. When the state budget was signed into law, there was this sort of carefully choreographed joint statement from Senate Leader Phil Berger, House Speaker Tim Moore, and the governor uh, saying we, you know, intend to work very closely on negotiations to get towards a solution on Medicaid expansion. And the governor even said he was optimistic that it could happen by the end of the July. End of July. Well, the legislature came into town this past week, uh, was here for about two days, uh, but only just sort of for a perfunctory no vote session. Most lawmakers didn't even drive to Raleigh. Uh, and we learned from Senate Leader Phil Berger then that uh, there is no real um, solution right around the corner. The negotiations are still happening, but they're not even happening uh, with legislators. They're happening with the stakeholder groups, the insurance companies, the hospital groups, trying to come up with some sort of uh, agreement. And the, the big sticking point seems to be around some of these other regulatory changes that are, are part of the equation for Medicaid, most notably certificate of need, which is the uh, state regulatory framework by which uh, hospitals and other healthcare facilities can expand. They have to go through this process to establish that they're needed, not just that, you know, we'd like to spend the money and build a new hospital in Raleigh or, or wherever else. Um, and that's an issue where apparently the hospital association is not, uh, according to Phil Berger, not willing to he come was to pretty a, critical of the yeah, hospital. I mean, he, for, for a guy who actually gets campaign contributions from the hospital association. He blamed them for the reason that we have an impasse, said that they, they've been receiving potential compromise offers and haven't agreed to, to move all down the court at all. Mitch, does the speaker have the votes to get this through if there is a deal? That, I think, is still a matter of question of whether he could get enough votes in there. I think they had enough votes to sort of kick the can down the road and have this study where the Health and Human Services Department would come back with some proposals that perhaps could get a vote in December. But I don't think that there are votes 
in the House right now today to go ahead with the Medicaid expansion that the Senate wants. And then the other key piece, and we've talked about this ever since that Senate bill came out, is the Senate said, look, if we're going to do this Medicaid expansion that's going to increase demand for services, we've got to increase the supply of health care and do these things like the certificate of need or letting the advanced practice nurses have the, the full range of, of their ability to practice. So they're really staying tied to that, that if you're going to do something on the demand side, you got to do something on the supply side. Well, isn't there an incentive for federal funding, though? There is right now. The Biden administration has got a carrot out there, about $1.2 billion in sort of startup funds for the 12 remaining states that haven't expanded. But what Mitch is talking about really is what the what the Senate is saying is a key component to uh, to this. If you're going to expand it, you have to make sure people can get an appointment. Right. Because right now, in other states that have expanded, uh, it's, they've got way more enrollment, spent a lot more money than they thought. We have the benefit of watching what's happened there. And statistically, Medicaid enrollees have poorer health outcomes. And a lot of times it's because they don't have consistent care. They can't get consistent appointments. And a big part of that is improving access by, by things like certificate of need. And uh, the hospital association okay. is very powerful in North Carolina. And I think that they're really preventing that from happening. Joe, put this in context, my friend. Well, I think it was Henry VIII that said famously, planning weddings is something I've gotten pretty good at. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to learn uh, from the experiences of negotiating other high profile types of initiatives between not just the legislature, but with the governor. And I think because Governor Cooper is so committed to expansion, he's going to push with all of his energy to try to get this done by the time he leaves the governor's office in two years. And quite frankly, the thing we need to remember is we started with the legislature, both House and Senate, really not too strongly in support of any kind of expansion. They've agreed on a destination. I think a lot of this is probably just playing out the negotiation through the usual legislative process of push and shove. I get a little, you get a little, and they'll come to some point of resolution Wrap on this. Wrap this up in about 20 seconds, my friend. Yeah, so I, one other thing uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger said this week is he still thinks there's a 75% chance that we get to an agreement on Medicaid expansion, but by the end of the next session. So we're really talking next year, maybe even the year after before we get some resolution. Okay, Don, I want to talk about Senator Tom Tillis. He jumped into culture wars this week. Yes, so the U.S. House, the, the uh, House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., uh, passed a bill called the Defense, uh, a bill that would repeal the Defense of Marriage Act. Basically, what this bill uh, does is, is replace um, marriage as being, rather than between a man and a woman, uh, uh, between spouses. And uh, it says that if it's valid under state law, then it's valid under federal law. That's basically what it is. The House has passed it. Senator Tillis has indicated that if he if he gets the opportunity, he would probably vote in favor of it, would support it, which has gotten a little bit of blowback from some folks in North Carolina who say, hey, look, 10 years ago, social conservatives, social conservatives who say 10 years ago when you were at the wheel as Speaker of the House, uh, we passed Amendment 1, which you may remember uh, said, defined marriage as between a man and a woman. It was later overturned in federal court, uh, but certainly he's gotten some criticism about this. But I also know that he's been working on, you know, some of these other things that this may not bubble up to the top over in the Senate. Let me ask you this. Has North Carolina changed, you think, in the last 30 years since Jesse Helms was in Collin? I, th I think certainly on this issue, even just since Amendment 1, the um, constitutional amendment banning gay marriage in the state passed, I think the numbers have, have shifted somewhat, and, and Tillis is recognizing that, and that they may shift further in, in the years to come. You know, Tom Tillis is not on the ballot until 2026. Um, people's attitudes, the political makeup of the state can change, and so I think that may be sort of why he's positioning 
conducting himself a little bit more moderately on these social issues. Well, do you think he wants to run for governor? Well, there have been a lot of rumors about that, and this would certainly seem to be a complicating factor if indeed he's going to face a Republican primary for governor in 2024. I think elements of the Republican Party that typically vote in Republican primaries would take exception with the position he's taken. I think Senator Tillis, throughout his political career, has been the kind of politician that says what he thinks, and he pursues the things that he thinks are important. Maybe this is a nod to the notion of North Carolina's changing political landscape, suburban voters being a slightly more progressive right. on issues like this. Well, is he trying to contest himself with Mark Robinson, the lieutenant governor? Well, I, perhaps, but I would say this, and I, I know Senator Tillis pretty well, I think this is something he just believes strongly. Do you think, Mitch, he's been consistent over the year on, on issues like uh, social conservative issues, uh, culture issues, immigration? I think there are times when people who are critics of Senator Tillis will say that he's guilty of a flip-flop or of making a major change in his position. I think, though, he would say that he is a person whose position evolves if the facts evolve. And I think in this case, basically, what he has said when people have asked him, well, why are you supporting it, is he's saying, look, this is a bill that just basically codifies into federal law where things stand today. The whole issue of this coming up is because of that Dobbs decision when... Uh, the, and what Justice Thomas said right, afterwards. It, right. The Dobbs, decision, about that. the Dobbs decision threw out the old Roe v. Wade uh, precedent on abortion. And in a concurring opinion, Justice Thomas said, look, this was based on the substantive due process, which I think, meaning Justice Thomas, is a bad legal doctrine. Let's examine some of the other things that are based on substantive due process, one of which is the same-sex marriage issue. So a lot of people are saying, look, if the Supreme Court is thinking about throwing this out, we need to put it into federal law. And I think that's what Tillis' uh, approach has been, is that, hey, this is where things stand now. All this bill would do is codify what the law is. Donna, have we heard from Senator Burr on this issue? No, and I think one th I'm not positive that we would. And one of the things that the critics of this bill say is, look, you're going to open this, you know, floodgates of lawsuits uh, from folks who may be litigious activist groups anyway, uh, suing anybody who has a government contract with uh, with um, uh, to serve. Uh, taxpayers that maybe doesn't, you know, believe, believes that a marriage is between a man and a woman. They may go after uh, faith-based foster care groups, things like that. That's what the critics are saying. Um, I think if that is what it becomes, because uh, Senator Tillis, when he was speaker, said uh, he wasn't sure Amendment 1 was going to hold up anyway, um, I think he may see that, uh, you know, uh, the lawsuit piece of, it, piece of it might be a problem. Wrapping about 30 seconds, my friend. Yeah, this is uh, probably just the first of what will be a lot of discussion about these sort of social issues in, in the midterm elections. I think Republicans see this as an important issue set for base Republican voters. They want to make sure that their voters don't fail to turn out because of all of the publicity about this probably being a red wave election. And these are issues that those voters feel very strongly about. And so I think we're going to see more on these types of issues throughout the fall. Joe, I'm coming right back to you. Let's talk about the 13th Congressional District race. A lot of people view that as a toss-up. It absolutely is a toss-up. New districts in Lucky 13, what we might call, is Wake County, Johnston County, part of Harnett and part of Wayne County. Wake makes up more than half of the total and Harnett about a third more. So just a little portion of those more rural counties. In the new district boundaries, Cooper won in 2020 with 53% of the vote in those areas now and Biden only with 50%. So you can see the margins are pretty close. And the thing about a district that has razor thin margins, margins is it really 
matters what kind of whisker you are if you want to try to win it. And so here we see two candidates, Wiley Nickel, who's a, currently a state senator, originally from California, ran for the legislature in California back in 2006, moved to Cary in 2009, an attorney, criminal defense lawyer, right. mid-40s, two kids. He's running a campaign that he says is a people-powered campaign, sort of a traditional Democratic uh, way of thinking of things. Bo Hines, uh, in his mid-20s, was a football player at NC State, went to Yale, was injured, wasn't able to complete his uh, football career, married once, uh, divorced, married again now. He, he says he's 100% pro-life, pro-gun, pro-free speech, and pro-Trump. And we're seeing a little America bit... America first candidate, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing a little bit of a migration from the people that were supporting Madison Cawthorn in terms of the political consultants. Hal Weatherman is now working for the Heinz campaign. The key is, uh, Nichols has done a little better in terms of fundraising, and I think the strategy for Nichols is to try to portray Heinz as a carpetbagger, that he's not from there and he's a MAGA Republican, and that should scare those suburban voters in Wake County. Okay. I think for Heinz, he's got to make the case that he is the Trump-endorsed candidate and that's going to turn out Republican voters for Mitch, him. Mitch, how important is Trump in this race? I think he's going to play a major role because the main reason that uh, Bo Hines won the primary was he kept saying, I'm the guy that Trump supports. He didn't really say a whole lot other than those basic things that you mentioned, the pro-life, pro-gun. But he also said, I'm the Trump guy, and that was really enough to help him win the primary. So uh, I suspect that he will still be interested in talking about his association with President Trump. And I'm also guessing that Wiley Nickel is going to try to appeal to the anti-Trump voters in that district saying, Hines is the Trump guy, and that's the only thing he has going for him. So it'll be interesting to Colin, see. Colin, your take on this race? Yeah, so this will be an interesting one to watch. You've already seen Wiley Nichols' campaign come out trying to tie Bo Hines to Madison Cawthorn, the recently defeated, very controversial congressman from Western North Carolina, largely because of their age. There's not that many similarities between the two. Uh, and so if you're able to sort of portray Hines as more of an extremist for what essentially is kind of a moderate district, I think that could advantage Nichol. Uh, but in a lot of senses, these guys are sort of corks bobbing on the sea of the uh, political landscape nationally, and I think that'll have a big part in this. No, no. Who do you give the edge to? Well, I think it's really going to come down to out-of-state money. Democrats nationally have said that they are really, uh, that, that the Wiley-Nickel support in that race is really important to them to maintaining control of the, of, of Congress. And certainly national Democrats are coming in. But then, but now we have uh, Representative Kevin McCarthy is going to be campaigning with Bo Hines uh, in August. So he'll be down in North Carolina from what we're hearing. I think you'll see Trump here too. I think him. you'll see Trump here. So Republicans and Democrats on both sides of this race are coming in because they see it as a critical piece to control the House. We should also mention Okay. Sabato's crystal ball yes. just flipped this from toss up to leans Republicans saying this is the type of district that will usually vote against the president's party in a midterm. Your crystal ball, final seconds. Yeah. Well, I think a big part of it, and Mitch makes a great point, uh, it'll be the Ted Budd race. If the Budd campaign can help turn out voters in the 13th district, great point. I think that raises the Heinz vote and increases his chance of success. Okay, I want to go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. We have had a lot of reports about inflation and a lot of questions about what is causing inflation. My underreported story is a bill in Congress that would have the economic and budget officials in the administration have to determine the economic and inflationary impacts of President Biden's executive actions. This is a bill that is co-sponsored by Patrick McHenry of North Carolina, along with Elise Stefanik of New York, who's a major player in House the Conference House Republican Committee. Caucus. Exactly. She's the chair of that committee. They and another uh, sponsor are moving forward with this bill. 
it really has no chance in a Congress that's led by Democrats. But if the Republicans are able to win control of the House in the next chamber, you might see a bill like this on the floor again next year. And by the way, Patrick McHenry may well be the chairman of House Financial Services Committee. Joe, underreported? Yes, the federal minimum wage, $7.25, turned 13 years old this week. And if I remember having a 13-year-old, it's surly and un, uh, if I find you to be an idiot. So uh, <laughs> well, we see now that inflation has driven down the value of the minimum wage to its lowest uh, value ever. And with the number of states increasing minimum wages at, at the state level and the fact that employers are having to pay higher wages just to attract the workers that they want. Probably the federal minimum wage isn't as relevant a thing as it once was, but it's not been changed in a long time and is not really holding its value against the cost of goods and services. Was there any appetite here to, to raise it? I, I don't think so at this point. It's one of those things that the business community says, uh, you know, let the, let the marketplace drive what the, the right rate is for drives yeah, and so far that's been the prevailing argument here. Colin underreported. Uh, so there's a uh, amicus brief in the uh, Leandro education funding case this week, filed by a group of about 50 or so business leaders from Did across you talk the state. Talk about this. Leandro tends to be one of my topics. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll get you going on this one. Um, but yeah, this, what was interesting to me about this group of 50 business leaders, it was fairly bipartisan. Um, not surprising that uh, left-leaning business leaders would urge the state supreme court to uphold the lower court's ruling to transfer money from the state's treasury, hundreds of million dollars to support this remedial education funding plan. Uh, but you also saw the leaders of the SAS Institute, uh, Jim Goodnight on there, uh, Seppi Saidi, who's the chair of the North Carolina Chamber, uh, on there as well. So sort of going against uh, the state legislator's position on this, which is that only the legislature uh, can spend money on education, and this case ought to be thrown well, out. Jim Goodnight is very interested in public education, as is his wife, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And so I think that's what you're seeing here is there's a, a big group of public education supporters that have decided to weigh in and take sides on this case. Donna. Uh, so under we hear a lot of uh, ribbon cuttings, a lot of announcements about jobs coming here and incentive packages. Um, but we're not hearing as much about those who are saying no. They're giving the money back. They've agreed to uh, an incentive package and now have found that they can't meet the staffing requirements or because of COVID, people want to work remote. They can't move their headquarters. Microsoft, uh, Advanced Auto Parts, a few others have said, you know what, we're not going to be able to meet our end of the deal. And it's led critics of these incentive packages to say, look, stop picking winners and losers. Just reduce the taxes for all businesses and that'll bring them here. Well, how much do you think housing costs and the cost of housing here has gone up like 20 percent impacts this, these decisions, you think? You know, I think a bigger impact to it would be the, the move to remote work. I think a lot of times when they want to create jobs in North Carolina, they may already have those folks somewhere else. Like, if, for example, Advanced Auto Parts would be moving their headquarters from Norfolk to Raleigh. Uh, you know, a lot of those folks may have been remote for the last year and a half and it's hard to get them to move. So you think these big incentive packages may be on the ropes a little bit? Well, I think that that's hard because, uh, you know, people who support the idea say, look, if everybody else is doing it, we need to do it too. But critics say, look, if we had no corporate income tax, they would come. Right. We wouldn't be picking winners and losers. We wouldn't have the federal government deciding who's getting that check. Okay, let's go to the lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? up felons who want to vote in North Carolina elections as part of an order that came out from the North Carolina Court of Appeals Wednesday marked the first day that felons who have completed active prison time but are still on probation, parole, or post-release supervision can register to vote in the November election. And unless the state Supreme Court says otherwise, they will be voting. Could be as many as 56,000 people. My down Gas prices, at least temporarily, we've seen that gas prices have fallen a bit uh, on Wednesday. What do you attribute that to? 
I think you have uh, people who are changing their habits because of the high prices. One barrels are being released from our strategic reserves today, right? That that helps as well, but I think it's mainly people saying, look, with gas this high, we're changing the way that we're going about things. Okay. My friend. Yeah, up. Interestingly enough, build a, your own casket business, increasingly finding favor with American publishers. Yeah. It's <laughs> always good to plan ahead. Do you know something? <laughs> <laughs> but apparently getting one of these build your own is only $700, where the average family spends two to $3,000 on a casket. Interestingly enough, a story reported in the Wall Street Journal, one of the owners of this company, when asked the question, what sort of special effects do people want with these caskets they're making themselves, he said, I see a lot of camouflage. I'm not yeah. sure why you would need a camouflage casket, but there you go. Down, uh, Raleigh Mayor uh, Marianne Baldwin, uh, Democratic Party endorsing her opponent. She said, I've got $500,000 in the bank, so thank you very little. Colin. Uh, up, sticking with the city council theme, uh, Charlotte Democrats, uh, despite a year in which uh, Republicans are expected to do really well, they held their ground on the Charlotte City Council and kept uh, roughly the same balance of power there uh, without Republicans uh, taking back some of the seats no held by Democrats. Voter turnout. 11% in Charlotte to pick your city leaders. Really bad, but it's late July. Lots of people are on vacation and not paying attention. Uh, down, uh, Governor Roy Cooper's uh, presidential prospects. There was an article in Slate this week assessing different possible candidates that said Cooper is just too boring, that he is what it would look like if a sweater designed to humans. So not, <laughs> not great news for Cooper there. All emails to Colin Campbell. At <laughs> no, who's up? Who's um, down? I'm going to say up prayer in schools. We're seeing just sort of bubbling up uh, in Michigan, Florida, a few places, people starting to talk about prayer in public schools, whether it's led by a coach or it's a, you know, a study of some sort. Um, I think it's interesting. It's probably stemming from what we saw coming from the uh, Supreme U.S. Court. Supreme Court. Uh, we may be seeing more of it. I think it's interesting. Uh, down Gerald Baker, Wake County. He was he is the sheriff of Wake County, uh, Raleigh, the capital city. He lost his primary by a lot. Uh, so he had a primary runoff uh, this week, and the his challenger, Willie Rowe, got 75 percent of the vote. The Republican He'll now that race is? Donnie Harrison. So uh, now Willie he was a former sheriff. He lost to Baker, uh, and now he will be back on the ballot and going against Willie Rowe. Mitch, headline next week. Federal judge extends her order against law on lying in election campaigns. Is that an antiquated law in your view? Well, it is an old law. It was put in place in 1931, and apparently there had never been any prosecution on it before. And I think it does uh, it, it does present some problems because it basically would say government can decide what is fact and what is not. A lot of people would have a problem with that. Joe, headline next week. Yeah, Biden got COVID. He's had economic issues now, tensions with China over Taiwan. The president needs a win. He needs something he can point to as a success for his administration heading into the midterms. Headline next week. Well, we had all these announcements about electric vehicles, first electric cars to be manufactured in North Carolina. This week, there was an announcement about electric boats. Next week, electric airplanes to be manufactured here. Quickly, headline next week, Donna. Uh, we'll be watching the State Board of Elections. They may be reconsidering the Green Party nomination to the ballot. Okay, great job, panel. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. We got a roll. See you next week on Front Row. Major funding for Front Row with Mark Rotterman is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Nicholas B. and Lucy Mayo Body Foundation, A.E. Finley Foundation, 
NC Realtors, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash Brock Rowe.